0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, and now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast, and it's only because of you, the listeners if you'd like us to stick around another seven years and there's a few simple things you can do that would really really help us out i would endlessly appreciate if you would number one share our episodes with your friends number two Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram, and tag me at Al Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy, and of course our guests. And number three, leave us reviews and five star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again. Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at URM.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot .com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, Answer Me Al." All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Jesse Ernster, who is a Grammy award-winning mixer with credits ranging from Kanye West to Doja Cat and beyond. He's fucking great and a really cool guy and actually a URM member. Enjoy. Jesse Ernster, welcome to the URM podcast.
1: Hey, man. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. I'm glad that we finally got to
1: do this. Yeah, yeah, same. I've been a listener for almost a decade now. Really? Yeah, I've been uh, a part of Nail the Mix for several years now. I think the last one I actually participated in as far as the contest was the uh, Mashuga, I think in 2017, early 2017.
0: I had no idea that you were actually a community member. Yeah, I've just, yeah. I've just known about your career and stuff and talked to you online, but I, I didn't know that you were actually in the Nail the Mix community. Very cool.
1: Yeah, I'm just, you know, kind of worshiping all the same guys that that your listeners are.
0: (laughs) I mean, they are pretty great. Obviously, you know where I'm going to go with this. Do you find that there's any crossover skills-wise, technique-wise from... You know, what would apply in a sugar session to, like, a Doja Cat session?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. The basic fundamentals of, of balances, obviously, and, you know, the basics and gain staging and all that. Uh, I think that the primary difference between genres is... Uh, more or less the way that the mix is kind of established in the pop world during the uh, the producing, the production process. Correct me if I'm wrong in these days, in in this day and age, but I think that in like rock and metal productions, it really can go from zero to hero in the mix stage. And I think that's kind of the expectation. But when a production gets to me from the hip hop or the pop world, it's like, it's basically already in the ballpark. Any sort of changes after that kind of freak everybody out. I do think that
0: there's a lot more room For, you know, Zero to Hero in the mix. And I guess a lot of it does have to do with the vast differences you'll encounter on metal sessions. You know, you have everything from the most low budget, just bare bones, nothing good could possibly happen here (laughs) style of production where it has to be turned into something in the mix. But then you also have some people who basically by the time they're done with the production production, it is pretty damn close. Like, I know my partner Joey Sturge is, um, it's not that he used to mix while tracking, but he would commit to all his sounds before moving on. And so, by the time his productions would be finished, like, you would be pretty, pretty close. Um, I know, like, when we had, like for instance, the Jens Bogren Opeth month, those Raws. I wouldn't really call them raw. I mean, it's pretty damn close.
1: Dude, I, I still practice on that session. I'm so sorry to cut you off. Oh, I just okay. got excited. Yeah, I still pull up the... Uh, it's a fader at zero mix. It a- is. And uh, it's so fun. Even with just a, a mouse, you know, clicking around and pushing up and faders. And I always like to envision like, oh, I'm I'm Chris Lord Algae moving faders around. But like, that is really a tremendous example of fantastic engineering. And It's funny
0: you say that because on that that session actually i started to hear student mixes my initial thoughts were like what are you doing like do you not realize how good <laughs> these tracks are why are you overcooking them like the uh, people were obliterating these pristine <laughs> beautiful and i don't mean perfect in like the uh, you know sterile sort of way i mean perfect as in like artistic perfection like in engineering performance like Everything The artistry is just as good as it gets. And then these students were just annihilating, just <laughs> annihilating everything. So I made a post. Uh, I issued a challenge, the Zero Plug-In Challenge, uh, mixed with faders and panning only. Yeah. See what happens. And lo and behold, people's mixes got better because you had to try to make that thing sound
1: worse. Absolutely. I, I think the biggest thing there would be... And you could almost do the whole mix with just, like, one filter on every track. Because, like, the biggest thing that I think beginners, like, I'm sure we both went through this, uh, the biggest thing you go through is, like, oh, I need to get more top-end out of this. I need more perceivable top-end, so I'm going to boost top-end. When really it's like, well, there's probably some mucky mid-range resonances that are just eating up all of your headroom and not allowing the top-end that's there. It's already there. (laughs) It's just not allowing it to pass through. So sometimes it's just an imbalance where you just got to cut some of that mid-range and then you you get that thing happening
0: get rid of what's uh in the way of what's already great and already present absolutely so you're saying that in the pop the rap world just in the in that upper tier of the music industry this sounds like the expectations out of a mixer are a little bit different so now while i i did kind of i don't want to say contradict but i did slightly contradict you a little bit, but I do think that the the expectations out of a mixer in metal, there's a lot of expectations. Like when you send it to a mixer, you're expecting it to sound devastating to whereas it might not have sounded devastating before. So you are expecting a lot. So what I'm wondering is, because of what you said, where it already pretty much is what it's going to be, what is expected out of a mixer then?
1: Well, a lot of the time it's just kind of to master the song <laughs> usually it arrives as either an ableton session a logic session or pro tools and and the expectation is you know nobody even asks like hey what do you want for stems um well occasionally you know the producers that i build relationships with they will ask that but uh, a lot of the time if an anr or a manager just hits you up and they just send the session they're like, cool. Uh, here it is. <laughs> and it's kind of an expectation that I just have those plugins and have all of the stuff. What What do you mean by master the song? Like
0: mastering? Like
1: They are expecting when something comes back from mix, they're expecting, okay, this sound, this feel, the vibe, everything is right about what we have built. It is exactly how we want it. I think in my mind that they are just looking for somebody to sign off on it and tell them, all right, man, it is done. Here it is. Here's the mixed version of the song. <laughs> so a lot of the time it's... It can be as simple as just pulling it up and applying some light surgical EQ across the board to kind of get things to fit a little bit better. Sort of these subtle changes, giving it the last couple of percent and then sending it back. Sometimes it's just changing their gain staging and a lot of the time it's just, you know, doing way less limiting to help the transients poke through and to, to really get the punch back in the recording.
0: So where does the actual mastering come in?
1: <laughs> After that, then it does go to, to somebody to master and yeah... <laughs>
0: but I get what you're saying. Like it sounds like the amount that you have to do to it and the types of things that you have to do to it are almost in line with what a mastering engineer does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And with that being said, you know, I'm, like everybody listening, I'm completely obsessed with music and audio and mixing, and it's all I think about. And I'm a space cadet, and my wife calls me out on it all the time. <laughs> She's like, "Be in the moment." Uh, I, I want to take pride in what I do, I, so I, I dig in on every mix, and I, I try to like enhance everything, you know. And but there's such a fine line between cleaning up and maximizing the the working elements of their production and the winning the winning aspects of their song to just doing too much, and yeah. and. As sometimes wrong is right. Sometimes that attitude of the way that their snare is clipping or the way that the vocal distorts is technically completely incorrect and rubs me the wrong way as, a, as an engineer. But musically, that, that is the vibe they were going for. It is intentional. So if I undo those decisions, it's kind of a slap in the face to those people and the producer and the writer, everybody involved. They're like, well, what gives you the right, man? What are you doing?
0: Is it one of those things where, especially those producers, right, are at such a high level? that this stuff is not haphazard. Obviously, I'm not working on these sessions, so I don't know, but I imagine that if there's a something clipping, like a snare is clipping a certain way, it's not because of incompetence, it's a decision. It's a decision and whether it's a conscious or unconscious decision, it's still a choice. They liked it for a reason and that's why it's there, not because anyone didn't know what they were doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes there's a gray area, you know? Sometimes there's like a, you can hear an edit pop in there. Yeah. Of course. Like where the vocal is. And and I'll just shoot a text over to the producer and say, like, hey, you know, uh, sometimes this is intentional. I just want to see, are, are you cool if I take some liberties and, and kind of clean some of that stuff up? Or is that part of uh, what you guys were going for? And, uh, You know, 99% of the time, that's it's really appreciated that that I went forth with that extra level of communication. It shows that you care and, you know, hey, I'm not just here clocking in to do the job and, you know, give you a 20-minute mix back. Like, I really, you know, my name's on this. I want this to be the best possible song ever. I want to share the message and help the artist deliver this this tune and hopefully, you know, really impact some listeners. Best foot forward kind of a thing.
0: I like what you said about not doing too much. Like, one thing I've always thought and I've said it many times, is that a great producer or a great mixer, it applies to both, know when to get the fuck out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) Yeah, that's as much a part of the, the job as doing, you know, knowing how to do things is knowing when not to.
1: Yes. And man, I I learned this the hard way. You know, I came from tracking bands in Minneapolis and working with rock groups and acapella groups and country bands and just really like getting the engineer chops built up and getting to really flex my muscles, shaping those sounds. And then I come out here and I start engineering and mixing records and I got stuck dumped on. I lost gigs, man, <laughs> from doing too much. Like I would get a, I would get a song to mix and I would just, all right, here we go. It's Jesse Ray time, baby. <laughs> do everything I think the song should do. Fader throws here, echoes here. Like, oh, I'm going to add a, a big sub kick underneath and put some 808s and strings in at the end. Oh, it'll be awesome. Every single time it, w- it was a, it was a loss. <laughs> <It's>
0: like, <laughs> yeah. So how do you know the difference between when extra is needed and what, I mean, I guess that is kind of like what I was saying, like a great mixer, great producer knows when to step back. But uh like, where is that line for you? Is it an instinct or is it a request from the people sending it to you? Like, how do you define that line of...
1: Yeah, I try to define that line by having a phone call with the artist, the, uh, the producer, the manager, a before I start. I will jump right in and find out what the record is all about and what their intent is. And sometimes they say, you know, we're, we're kind of stuck on this one. We feel like we've done all we can do. Um, you know, we liked what you did on XYZ. Uh, we would love to hear what you do like anything, please just be my guest. And I get excited and then I go crazy and do some stuff and I say, hey, here it is, you know, um, I'm not going to have hurt feelings. You can, here's you a bunch of options. You can pick through, you can uh, tell me what's working, what's not. I'm happy to delete the other stuff and we'll we'll move forward from there. Uh, other times they'll just they say, hey, this this is pretty much finished. Just uh, if we want a little more polish on that vocal. You know what to do there. And, uh, you know, the way you did saxophones on this song from the genre. Yeah, that that's, we want that same effect here. Uh yeah, you're the dude man, just just bring this one home. We need that extra 1%. And that's most of the time, <laughs> honestly. What's the rest of the time? Uh well that would have been the first option. The uh okay. <laughs> you know, they they, they kind of give you the uh Yeah, we're we're sort of stuck on this just to do what you think would work and
0: yeah. I guess it does come down to communication at the end of the day. That's you know, the secret to life <laughs> basically when dealing with other people, I think in anything is uh Knowing how to communicate with them, I imagine that um, when you're just dealing in a mixed capacity, you have to do less psychiatry and can do more just straight up communication. But um, but since I'm not in your world, I actually don't know how that works. Like, is it is it much more business like in terms of this is what we want? Here you go. We like this, not this. The end. Or does it get crazy?
1: Oh, it, it definitely can get crazy. I, th- I think th- most of the convolution in the process comes from uh, insecurity from the performer about certain aspects of their tonality. And, and this is really applicable in any genre. I think yeah. that an artist or a producer could tell you like, man, I really, we really need that vocal thick. I need a lot of low end in that vocal. And they might hand you a mix note that says way more low end. And they might even give you the frequency. Like, I'm a producer who knows what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell them I want more 100 hertz on this vocal. And they might think that that's the thickness. And and I think that uh, what kind of what can kind of help you n- navigate and, and wade those waters is to learn how to discern and define what what's actually being said, what's like the deeper issue. So I, for me, I've found like vocal thickness is not always in the low end. It could be like between 800 and 1K. Sometimes they, they just need some like meaty forward mid-range to like just bring the voice forward and make them sound thicker. You know, th- there are just so many implied things under the surface that they don't understand. And that's kind of our job to dissect what their needs are and give them a, the the result back and a vocal up note doesn't always mean vocal up
0: you know it's funny i remember uh jay rustin making a post once love jay he's amazing i man, you know i don't I actually don't even remember if he made a post or he texted me this but it was you know the client had asked for vocals up guitars up drums up keyboards up <laughs>
1: when reality is just based Based down down. yeah (laughs) gosh he's amazing yeah exactly
0: it's interesting to me though you have done so many different things and you're obviously a metalhead you know you were saying that when you were in LA when you got to LA that you knew that you needed to assert yourself in your own niche instead of trying to spread yourself over many different disciplines or genres and you know, you even went as far as putting your resume on top of boxes of donuts and hand delivering them to potential studios. But <laughs> what I'm curious about is how did you decide on that niche? Like, I mean, if you're a nail the mix learning sugar, but like you've also done a bunch of other genres, like how did you make this decision? Like I'm niching down in this area. What was the calculation there?
1: Yeah, I, I just felt like I had the greatest drive and aptitude to become a great mixer. That's what my dad did, you know? They, I, I grew up seeing my dad make records with bands in our house. He was an early adopter of Pro Tools. But, but I mean, specifically
0: in LA, like with the pop and the R&B, where did that come from? Like, how did you decide that you're niching down there? Like, why didn't you pursue metal, for instance?
1: So to kind of rewind before I... Decided to niche down. I had a chance encounter with Kanye West. Once that happened, I had a, kind of developed a network and a bunch of contacts and friends that were working in that space. So the the dominoes kind of fell, and I, I found myself in a lane in a genre of music where I was I was staying busy and and working at a high level that was really satisfying. And uh, I think pop and hip hop and Afrobeats and all the stuff I get to do and uh, a lot of R&B now too, it, it is, you're able to incorporate so much of the principles of compression and how to manipulate transients and get aggressive sounds. All the stuff that us, you know, metal guys <laughs> are into doing, it, it translates really nicely to, to those genres. And And I think that, uh, you know, the, the guys and gals like us that are, that are into this style of heavy music, I think we bring something unique to the table. So anybody listening, I think there's a, a major opportunity to be able to put your skills to work in, in these other styles. The thing that
0: I find interesting is lots of times well all right let me rewind the thing that i find interesting is that you did what i think people should do which is there's what you listen to you know and you know there's what you uh what you're into as a fan which could be what you're working on or not but then there's the direction that the opportunities actually lead you in and Actually, developing a career in music, like a a successful career, is a rare thing. Like, there are a lot of people who want it, not very many people who are not just good enough, but good enough and find the right opportunities and have the right network and the right timing and all that. And so when that does start to come together, you kind of just got to go with it. And it might not be in the exact way that you thought it would happen, but you really do need to be able to spot when that stuff is lining up and just go with it, in my opinion.
1: Completely agree. Well said.
0: That brings up my next question. Did you see yourself ending up in these genres?
1: Uh, No, but I've always been really interested and driven to be a part of popular music. Uh, You know, when I started out, which was, I guess, in the 2000s, you know, popular music was still pretty pretty rock based. Specifically I'm thinking of bands like well not even bands, but like, you know, even Pink and Katy Perry and Five Seconds of Summer. These were groups that were pretty it was live instrumentation. It was cool. And I I, I would have been really thrilled to get into working on stuff like that. So I always wanted to work on music on a high level. Yep. I'm I'm really competitive. I'm into trophies. I want Grammys. I want plaques. <laughs> you know, that was always a major, major driving force behind uh what I wanted to do. So yeah, I, th- I think throughout every step of the, the game, I, I wanted to, no matter where it was, I, just, I wanted to be a part of something that's big, that impacts a lot of people. I wanna work on massive records. I understand. You know
0: what? I think it's great that you recognize that about yourself and that you're honest with yourself about that. The reason I say that is because you know there's there are also people who, great producers too, by the way, who give no shits about Grammys or plaques or they don't care necessarily about working at you a know, high level industry wise, as long as they're working on something that they really, really love. But that's not to say that you, if you want Grammys that you're cool to work with stuff you don't love. I guess what I'm saying is everyone needs to understand what it is that they actually want out of this, because it helps you make better decisions if, uh, if you understand yourself and, You can make decisions that are in line with your ultimate goals. And if you're honest about your ultimate goals and clear about them, you will move in that direction more than likely. Um, And, you know, like for instance, I've always wanted to do something big. And it was weird to then start a death metal band knowing that my brain was wired for something bigger than you know, than just being in a death metal band. No knock on anyone in a great death metal band or anything. But my brain was just wired for doing something that had a much wider impact, I guess. And so I always knew that this death metal band I was in, no matter how far it got, was not the end of the road. And so I was always looking for what that next step was. And I was always thinking about how am I going to take this and turn it into that next bigger thing, um, which eventually I, I ended up figuring out. But I was honest with myself the entire time about what it is that I wanted. And it was difficult because you can't always share that with people because you can lose some friends or it can weird some people out if you're open about wanting to do big things, but it shouldn't deter you if that's what you want. You should be clear that that's what you want and go for it. If that's not what you want, that's cool too. It's just important to be super clear with yourself about what you're motivated by. So like if what you want are Grammys, plaques. To be working with the highest level artists possible. That's great. There's a certain way that you have to go about making that happen, right? Like, it's not going to happen staying in Minneapolis.
1: Yeah, exactly, man. I had that same, that exact same hunger (laughs) and sort of like dissatisfaction with, with what had been happening in my life. And I just, just like you, I saw the kind of the end of the road. So... Exactly like what you said. If you have that goal in mind, you're able to make actionable decisions and it'll inform the, the future moves and your trajectory. And I'm a big proponent for having like physical calendars, man. And ripping the calendar apart and having every month of the year out on the wall and just mapping out like, okay, that's the goal. Three months ahead. What are we doing now to get there. All of these things, I think, can be implemented. To a- it's interesting. What I like
0: about what you're saying is that this type of thinking and the goal-oriented, outcome-oriented thinking only serves us well when it's based around something actionable. I think like where a lot of people go wrong is when they get too into stuff like the secret and wishful thinking. That's that's basically, I just think of that as glorified wishful thinking, where they will do stuff like uh, make vision boards and state their goals and then just think that if all they do is state their goals or think positively or visualize that that's enough and it's totally not enough. I mean, that's step one is knowing what you're going for. But then after that, like it's all execution. And so I do like maybe two goal setting sessions per year. That's it. Like Hmm. maybe every six months, maybe every 12 months or something. And, you know, take an afternoon and just get clear. But then the rest of the time is straight up execution. And it is much in the way that you said, like I don't have calendars on the walls, but I do have methods for tracking every single thing. And uh, I definitely revisit what the goals are, what the desired outcomes are, and uh, adjust course frequently. I, de- I definitely think that um, if you don't do that part, the relentless execution the goal setting is pointless. Absolutely pointless.
1: Absolutely. You got to like storyboard this stuff, like pretend, like imagine scenarios of how you'll get to the goal. Like when I we came to LA, I thought, well, I, I know I can execute in the room. I need to get in the room. So I, okay, what's the plan of attack? Start getting to know some engineers, get and start mm-hmm. trying to find gigs in the room. And I thought, well, it's LA. I'm eventually going to run into some bigger artists. And at that point, you know, without punishing them (laughs) I can (laughs) I can just get in and execute and be cool and and get a gig and I fantasized about it over and over every day like oh I'm gonna get in the room I'm ready I'm let's let's do this and when the time came it, it happened you know
0: but you weren't just doing that you were also actually doing things in the real world yes yes you had to (laughs) Yes. A combination of an overactive fantasy life with, uh, (laughs) with actual real world action. I think that's the, that is the actual secret. You can't just do one of them. Also, I, let me just say, if people think that I'm talking shit about, uh, visualizing or goal setting, I'm not like, I think it's super important because if all you do is take action without having, you know, a GPS for where you're headed, then there's a lot of, uh, Chance involved with where you end up. You might be working really hard in a totally wrong direction.
1: Yeah, and it's important to like reassess really often too to find yeah. out like, am I am I actually happy? I'm doing what I kind of wanted to be doing, or what I'm setting out to. be. I'm really far in. Maybe I'm a year or two into this. And I'm just having so many doubts. Like, you got to be able to pivot. And this kind of happened with me out here. I was a a tracking engineer for hip hop sessions. And this was a great way to make a day rate from a label. And, you know, you can really make a living doing it. But it is emotionally draining. And you are the punching bag for the artist that's in the vocal booth. (laughs) It's really, really, really challenging to to do on a day-to-day basis. And I had to reassess. And and right there, I was like, okay, I'm dropping this right now now. I'm, I'm going to pivot into mixing. That's where I'm happy. I want to sit at home in front of my speakers. I want to be with my family and yeah, pivot, pivot, you guys. Okay. So, but the pivot
0: is a risk. If you had a pretty stable thing going on as a tracking engineer, how did you pivot without you know, dropping a grenade on your income. It did drop the grenade. <laughs> Fair enough. I've done that too.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, I sort of sunk my ships. Like when I was out here and I had a PA system that I was renting out and I was, I was providing to wedding companies and I was going out, I was, I was playing in some wedding bands and setting up the PA and doing the sound before for the ceremony and then all the stuff. And then I was teaching lessons and I was tracking people and doing editing work for a couple of producers and I was still mixing clients from Minneapolis. So I had like 50 different jobs doing the thing that we all did. Because we're trying to hustle. We're trying to make money and get good and get successful. Uh, and I just decided giving it all up. I sold all that gear, all of it. I bought a couple of pieces of just really great monitoring equipment for my mixing setup. And I dug in. That is a really good question, though. You got to know when when you can assess the risk of sinking your ships and moving into being a specialist in one niche area of the industry I mean, you go over all the time that you obviously have to have a a big savings and.
0: I man, when I started URM, I did not have a big savings. It
1: was some (laughs) scary shit. I think many of us can relate to that. It's and man, I hope we could talk about savings too. I I think this is like a portion of the recording. Let's do it. The recording community that like never gets addressed. Oh my gosh, you guys get your retirement accounts set up. Roth IRA, SEP IRA. Max those babies. <laughs> yeah, I know that like uh, that it's very sexy to
0: do the crypto thing. And I'm not saying don't do it, but uh, get those IRAs happening and max them out every year. And look, even if you can't max them out, just contribute. But those of you, especially those of you who are under 30... You're gonna fucking thank me if you do this.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I I am turning 30 in a couple of months. And I had a friend ten years ago when I was I had just turned 20. He said, Hey man, set up your Roth right now. I'm telling you, I didn't set it up until I was twenty four. So I waited mm-hmm. four years and the calculations I've done on <laughs> the difference in what I would have had now if I started 10 years. It's just it's enough to make you want to cry.
0: But still, you started it at twenty four. That's great.
1: Yes. I'm telling you guy's gear doesn't matter. Yeah. I tell this to my,
0: (laughs) to musicians I know too. I know so many musicians and signed musicians who make a living at this, who, you know, got extremely fucked last year, for instance. So I had many a financial conversation with those people and only out of all my friends, like two or three of them had anything anything as far as IRAs go or whatnot. And I tried to convince a bunch of people to do it, and uh, I got resistance most of the time, and it it bummed me out because you can do it. It's not that difficult, and I understand that you can't always max it out, but it is one step that you can take right now to ensure that your future is not really, really sad, basically.
1: Yeah, seriously, man. It's like... I mean I know that you've gone through a mega mega life change with your health and congratulations Thank by you. the way I've, I've been loving following it. I don't know about you but my my neck and back are already tired of sitting <laughs> in a chair all day. Oh yeah. Like there's no way I'm going to want to handle this when I'm, you know, 55 like we we need a way out guys and gals. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: the thing is there is no way out built into these lines of work like they do have in the real world. So you have to create your own way out. And the younger you start, the better off you're gonna be. But also those of you who are 40 or 45, 50 listening to this, who haven't saved a thing, you can still start now. Yep. Even if you only get 20 years of a, you know, of an IRA, a Roth IRA, it's still gonna be better than not having had it for 20 years.
1: Yep, got to do it. I really hope Joey does more of the stories where he talks about all of this stuff.
0: I agree. He should do that. But he should also, and I'm going to actually tell him, is talk about some more basic things. Man, he he's basically talking about finance on the level that he's mixing at or something. Yeah,
1: it's high level. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> it,
0: And there's a lot of people... Who are more like me who are not into I'm not into that stuff uh I I'm not like like of course I'm into money as much as anybody else and I want to have it but I'm not into financial shit the way that Joey and Joel are what resonates with me is something that you can do on a regular basis uh that grows it and doesn't require me to go down too many rabbit holes and I think that that is how most people in music are. They aren't that interested in finance. But the thing is that a lot of these things that you can do to set yourself up don't require you to be interested in finance. It doesn't take that much effort to set up a Roth IRA and fund it. You got to know what it's investing in or, you know, so you do a little bit of research, but you don't have to go down insane rabbit holes. You don't need to make it like a second career, basically.
1: I remember like thinking about this when I would hear people tell me about stuff like this and I was like, ah, oh, man, I've got a lot of time or it's easy for you to say like you have money and it's just, it's completely doable. And it just sickens me how, how much the the musical vending, like e-commerce, just culture, it just preys upon the vulnerable. Not only the vulnerable, but the like the broke, Like the musician community is just comprised of people who are addicted to getting the next best cool gizmo or gadget. And I'm one of those people. I get suckered in, but I don't see the equal or the equivalent effort out there in the space to educate people on financial security for their futures.
0: And here's the problem. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. So we have a course called Career Builder for people that are. Not familiar, and I'm not trying to sell it because it's not on sale right now. We have courses that open up and then close, like once a year or something. Like very smart, yeah, because we want people to take them at the same time. There's several reasons, but uh, so our non-subscription mm-hmm. courses, like you know how it's done with Will Putney or Career Builder Ultimate Guitar Production, they open and they close, and we have one called Career Builder. There's zero audio in it. It's just about establishing a career, networking pricing yourself all all that kind of stuff. It is by a long shot our lowest selling course. Bomber. Yeah, by a long shot. And um we've learned and at a similar experience at Creative Live too that the business content just doesn't there people are just not as interested in it straight up. They're just not. I think there's less people who actually want to uh out of all the people who buy gear and even education. There's a very small number of them who actually want to do it for real. And then out of the people who actually want to do it for real, there's an even smaller number who actually want any, uh, any help outside of like music techniques or, you know, audio techniques. They don't want any actual career advice or, and so it almost becomes not worth the resources to put into creating those types of products unfortunately. Not every single thing we do is for money, but like, there's a, there has to, we can't just do stuff that's gonna like, you know, not matter to anyone. It's unfortunate that there there really isn't much of an audience for that stuff. It is a bummer. Joey's uh, stories are great, though. Yeah. So, what my hope is that like, through us talking about it like on a podcast like this and those stories that Joey and Joel post is that the People who are concerned about their future, who are trying to do this for real, that they pay attention and do think to themselves, I should probably start a retirement account and do the basic amount of research required to set that up. And then they go and they do the research and they set it up and they just fund it. That alone will make a massive difference, I think.
1: Yeah. You guys DM me if you have any questions, you know, I I, I am always in my inbox I'm, I'm not exactly proud of that because i'm i think like many of us i have a, a bit of a problem with social media and just being addicted to my device but i i, yeah, I, I want to help hit me up <laughs> i'll answer any questions that i can i'm not an expert or a financial advisor but yeah i, I plus I, I love the community aspect of urm and uh yeah i, I want i want to meet you I want to meet you guys and gals so yeah reach out
0: yeah we we all have uh weird addiction to social media. But I do think that there are some people who do care and I'm sure they'll reach out. And I mean, have you ever considered posting about it?
1: I do these Q&As occasionally on Instagram and I'll... I've seen those, yeah. Yeah, and I'll talk a bit about that stuff because I'm... I'm sort of just disheartened by how many gear questions I get. And I'm just so uninterested in that. Like, man, if, and I'm a bit uninterested in the money conversation too. I, I, I just get concerned for the people and I have gotten to know many of my, you know, friends and followers and fellow engineers and, I think now in 2021 we have more of a uh, knit community than ever before in the history of mankind, and it's it's just cool to get to know these people and get to know their their hearts and their stories. Like, well, what are you into? What 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 makes you tick? What what resonates with you? And and to get to know these people and just but to see them going down the the wrong paths and then being interested in the wrong things that aren't productive, in my opinion. That's, that's frustrating. I want to help in any way that I can.
0: Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before. And if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lama God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So let's talk about what some of the unproductive paths are. I think gear obsession is a mostly unproductive path.
1: It depends what you do. Absolutely. I think for mixing a record, you can mix it in the box and you can do it with some pretty basic plugins. I don't think you need $20,000 monitors either. How many of the, the greats mixed on NS10s that you can get for a few hundred bucks and, you know, with or without a sub and go
0: for it. Like anybody else, you know, I think gear's cool. Most people think it's cool. And uh, I think that it's very natural to want to get that new shiny object. But I think that the problem becomes when people over-focus on that at the cost of developing their skills. I mean, they spend more time researching gear than working on... What they actually should be working on. And I think that that becomes the problem, or when they think that the gear is going to solve their issues for them. That's when I think that it's a problem.
1: Yeah. And I'm so guilty of this. We all are. It is cool, though, because if you're astute enough and to, you know, accept. The reality of the situation. Most of the time, when you're in that stage as kind of a a beginner or amateur recordist or a hobbyist, any level, you buy the piece of gear. You think, "Oh man, this is it. Here we go," or like, "Now I can mix that new project." And you do it, and you see that the results are exactly the same. (laughs) That's kind of the that's the instant feedback that maybe you needed. I know I needed that, dude. I bought I had probably half of the gear that exists out there at one time or another, and. All of it's gone now because none of it contributed to help me develop my sound <laughs> at all.
0: Though you do have a shit ton of bass traps in that room.
1: Yes, I do. I built them and they were really, really, it was approximately like 2% of the cost of buying tube traps, you know. I, I don't want to say the company that makes them, but these are based off of that design and I just made them myself. I reverse engineered it and I wanted to have time getting my hands dirty and, and also save a lot of money that I can use elsewhere. And save for my, you know, for my kids in the five two nine accounts and <laughs> my retirement.
0: Just saying, you have an inordinate amount of bass traps in your room, and I think that uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is because you're talking about you, know, you buy a piece of gear and literally nothing changes, nothing happens. Your stuff sounds exactly the same because you're still making the same exact decisions because nothing changed in the way you're hearing anything or listening to anything. However, for instance the bass traps you have in your room, well, that right there actually can help you do a better job.
1: By far the most important thing ever. <laughs> Where would you be if when... Okay, so like post your band, post-band era Al, uh, when you were producing... Down in, it was Florida, right? Yeah, in Florida. I guess I don't know, you were sharing a studio, right?
0: I had a, I was a partner at a studio down there. I started recording in like 2000. So band era me, like we still recorded at my studio most of the time. And I was recording bands through 2000 to 2010. Then I moved to Florida and I got asked to contribute a drum room to a studio that already existed, a prominent metal studio. And so I bought a house that had a living room that was the most amazing drum room you could ever imagine. And, uh, you know, had a full control room in there too, and that was my part of the studio. So, yeah, where would I be without the acoustic...
1: treatment? Yeah. Or like if you, you know, the first time you sit down at a, at a computer or today it would be like a laptop. If you had been in an ideally treated room with accurate acoustics, like it would have been a hundred times better than the, probably the resulting mixes that you were getting, wouldn't it?
0: Absolutely. And I remember how much better every single time that I upgraded the treatment in my room, my work got a lot better. And I remember it was the most dramatic though, The first time when I went from working in a room that was just walls, (laughs) you know, just walls with nothing to adding treatment to where there wasn't flutter everywhere. Everything I did still sucked back then, but still it sucked way less, way less because I could suddenly hear what was coming out of the speakers like that alone was a major, major major game changer. So if I had actually been able to hear properly from the beginning, I would have probably gotten a lot better, a lot faster for sure.
1: Yes, and I want everybody to be aware that there are a couple different factors to great monitoring. I mean, there's a billion different factors, (laughs) but the the one that is, I think, overthought is the frequency response of your monitors in your room. And I think that the aspect that is completely forgotten about or not talked about often enough is the resonance time of your room. That is really what I've gone after with with this bass trap design. Say you have a fairly flat response in your room, like okay, I'm I'm looking at uh, sonar works. It looks good. It's flat, cool. But these these frequency waves they bounce around and they they build up on each other, and they'll actually like you might get down to like 40 hertz, and 40 hertz could be resonating at like a one second decay time when the rest of your response, the rest of your frequencies are all at like you know point three point four. So like, what happens if you hear if you're hearing four times longer decay time at 40 hertz? It's going to completely uh, affect the decisions that you make and you're going to like really be overworking that area. And then when you send the mix out and they listen in anywhere else or in headphones or in the car or somewhere that doesn't have that problem, they're going to be like, why is your low end choked? Why Why is it dead down there? Why there's there nothing going on? Like the resonance time is is so, so, so important. And yeah, these, these big old tube traps take care of that. I... By the way, I'm giving this free guide out to everybody. If you guys want to hit me up, uh, I'll send you the guide on how to build these tubes. They're really affordable. They eat up the low end so you have an awesome space. We can put a link in the show notes. Perfect.
0: Yeah, I'll get you that. So I don't believe in the 80-20 rule as like a religious thing where you should always focus on the the 20% that get 80% of the results. But 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 (laughs) and the big but focusing on the things that move the needle the most that's that really should be what you really do put your time into and something like this is one of those 80 20s that really 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 matters like and why i say 80 is because um you're probably not going to ever be able to build the perfectly treated room And not just that, even if you can just do a little bit of treatment, that goes a long way. Like, So you don't have to go 100% on it. Just do some, just do enough. And that in and of itself will do a lot in my
1: experience. Absolutely, and you don't have to spend a lot to do it right. No. You probably have too much nonsense in your studio anyway. Grab like one or two extra 57s that you don't even need, and just sell them used, and then with that money, like 100 hundred, hundred and fifty 150 bucks, you can buy a bunch of Owens Corning 703 or some of the cylinders, some of the tube stuff, which are like pipe wrapping, and you can just stuff them full of blankets, pillows, polyester, whatever, and, man, just put that stuff up.
0: That, and I got to say, you know the, one of the other things I think people should invest in is a good computer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's like, I, th- I feel like the th- the three things, the three most important things, I think, to sink money and time into are uh, what you're listening on, where you're listening in, and what you're working on.
1: Totally. I mean, let's talk about computer, though. Like, how big of an investment are you thinking?
0: Okay, that's a good question because I don't mean the $64,000 <laughs> Mac. You can get a really good Hackintosh for, you know... or something. Yep. I'm just not a PC guy, so I don't know much about them. But I do know that many people I know who do great work have home-built PCs and they don't have problems with them the way that people used to have problems with them back when I started recording. So you don't have to get a top-of-the-line Mac. You don't even have to get a MacBook Pro like mine. I have a really nice one. You can get a hackintosh or you can build a pc however if you're underpowered to the point where you can't really do your work that's the problem so a computer that has enough ram and also enough speed to be able to handle the work without fucking you up you can get away with a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars spent
1: yeah i think that's yeah that's the max yeah Definitely. Like I've been working on this 2012 cheese grater for the last like six years. And then I just went to the 2013 trash can this year. Mm-hmm. And like, I like to stay way behind the times because you can get a lot out of it that way. But those are still really good computers. Yeah, they're, they're maxed out and they're yeah. fantastic. And I think as a base point, I think anything above that, you might just be over processing. <laughs> Like, granted, I do these 200 track sessions where even if there's only a few plugins on each track, like it's still beating up the machine. But, you know, if you're mixing like a 10 or 12 track session with just a basic four piece band and like you have 10 plugins on each track, like there might be something, there might be another problem we got to talk about.
0: (laughs) Well, I was actually just thinking that while I was saying this computer thing, I was thinking, well, some people's computers are getting overtaxed. Because of bad session management and over processing, and that's why you should uh, watch the uh, <laughs> the mix prep fast track. <laughs> yes, you should. We have the basic mix prep fast track that Joel did, but we actually, by the time this comes out tomorrow uh, in our time, like not in podcast release time, so we're releasing a, a fast track called Next Level Mix Prep that we made with John Douglas, and it is it is like the manual for setting up a 747 for takeoff or something it is intricate as fuck so i, I had to plug that but proper session management and not over processing will save you from needing the most ridiculous computer ever now if you are trying to work in the world of sound tracking or something like that it's a different story i i do think that if you are working with something that has super high track counts you're uh you're needs are going to be greater. But in general, uh, the the people who I'm addressing are the people who try to mix with like 2 gigs of RAM or something or 4 gigs of RAM. Like, of course, the computer can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, what would you say the minimum RAM should be for uh, for mixing?
1: Uh, I'm the wrong guy to ask. I don't I don't really know how it correlates to performance to be honest. I don't either. <laughs> That's why
0: I wanted to ask someone else. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure. I'm going to say that
0: anything under eight, good fucking luck, and should be more like 16. If you can do 32, great.
1: Yeah. God, the options are so cool now. Like when I started, which is probably around the time you started recording, like it was Pro Tools 6, 6.3. On like a Mac. My dad had a Mac G4 tower. I,
0: I, I don't think we started recording at the same time. I'm older than you.
1: Oh, uh, yes, I suppose. Well, you said 2000. So I was trying to think which, which Pro Tools version was added.
0: Yeah, but my first time actually recording was like uh, like in the 90s. God, that's awesome. But I got into like recording like as like I'm going to build a studio in like 2001 or two.
1: Understood. Got you. Yeah, man. Do you remember when delay compensation didn't even exist? <laughs> uh, yeah, I also remember when it didn't
0: even work. As <laughs> <in Pro Tools. laughs> do I. Yeah. <laughs> like, it went from not existing to may as well not have existing for a really long time. I think they finally got it fixed. But yeah, it, I do remember that.
1: Well, they got it fixed just in time for it not to actually matter as much. I know. As far Isn't as... that funny? <laughs> like, why well, I get like... I don't think—remember the last time I mixed the session that had like a multi-tracked dr- drum recording where everything needed to be really kept in time with phase and—nope.
0: <laughs> it really has come a really long way. And computers are very, very powerful now compared to what they used to be. And DAWs are amazing. Another thing that's come a long way is, uh, man, I started making music again, which is something I never thought I would ever do, and I got all the neural— sick. Yeah, believe it or not, I got the the Neural stuff, their amp sims, and I haven't, yes. you know, I haven't tried a new amp sim since like 2013 or something. And you know, they were okay back then, but definitely the the tube amp uh crew was right back then. But now, holy shit, these uh, amp sims are fucking great. Like they are fucking phenomenal. Um yeah, the tools we have now are They've never been better, basically. They've never, ever been better. And this is part of why I don't think that people need to spend a ton of money on gear and crazy stuff. Because some of the really affordable tools now are as good as it's ever been in the history of uh, courting. Yeah, I agree, man. It's really, it's your skills you should worry about. Yeah. You said that the Kanye story was really interesting. So now I want to hear it. Oh. (laughs) Like, you can't, you can't, like, say that and then think I'm going to forget.
1: Yeah. So I found myself engineering, uh, filling in, subbing in for another engineer at the studio called Nightbird in West Hollywood. And I just got the call, you know, I had been engineering sessions for a bit in L.A. and kind of building my name as, you know, one of the guys who, you know, could... Sub in or, or or get some calls if somebody needs an engineer. And uh, I showed up and the session was for Tyga. I was like, wow, this is a big artist. This is a cool opportunity. We got in and we were just tracking for a few hours, tracking vocals. It was going really smoothly. It was great. And then Kanye comes in. <laughs> just, <laughs> just like that? He just like that. And he hung out with us for a few hours and, you know, we kept tracking. And then he played us some of his new album, which at the time was called Yandi And it was going to be coming out soon. And this was the fall of 2018, I just kept thinking, man, if I don't make something of, of this opportunity, I have to, I have to try to you know, speak with him and offer my services. How do, how do I leverage this into a greater long-term opportunity working with Kanye without punishing him? <laughs> you know,
0: I love that we're talking about this because the opportunity to be in a room working with someone at that level is when you're not at that level yet is once in a lifetime kind of thing. And you have that opportunity right there to either create a situation that will continue or never ever encounter them again in your life and it doesn't even matter that it happened.
1: Exactly. And I was faced with that dilemma. Like, well, I sat there for like two hours just like debating when the right time was to talk to him and how. And I was texting my wife. I was like, oh, he's he's here. I need to try to make something of this opportunity. And she's like, you gotta, you gotta do it. And I was like, but what if I get fired and blacklisted for, you know, the studio will never have me back if I, if I tried to... <laughs> make this happen and I thought whatever it doesn't matter this is this is the shot you know but I, so I decided to wait until at the end of the session I thought well I'll execute I'll keep I'll keep working I'll just you know really show him that I can deliver and that I'm reliable and and yeah we recorded it went very successfully and then he was packing up getting ready to go he went down the hall to use the bathroom once before leaving, and I <laughs> kind of followed him down the hall and I cornered him. I said, hey, man, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of nervous, kind of uh, red in the face and giggling and just said, hey, I wouldn't be able to sleep through the night if I if I knew I didn't take this shot and just tell you, I, I really admire and respect what you do. I'm a, I'm a fan and uh, I, I would love to come work for you if you need some more engineers on the road or where, whatever you're doing. I, I would love to... A part of your journey, and uh, (laughs) there was this moment of silence where he kind of tilted his head and looked at me mean. (laughs) And I'm like, "Oh, I'm about, I'm about to get it. I'm gonna get punched or fired or something." After a few seconds, he said, "All right, yeah, cool. What's your number?" He took down all my info, shot me a text, and then he uh, directed me to go around the corner and chat with his uh, assistant. And they flew me out to Chicago the next day. We started recording and just started this kind of work relationship, working on Kanye West's material.
0: Just like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we we got to travel all over. You know, we flew to Africa and we recorded at a safari resort in Uganda. And there were like hippos and giraffes, like right outside of our tent and... (laughs) we recorded right on the Nile River it was the most unbelievable life experience of all time and uh, i got a couple albums with him on my discography now as an engineer
0: did you realize that if you didn't you know if you didn't grow the balls in that moment your life might be completely different right now
1: it would be complete i think about it every day i am so incredibly fortunate uh, it could have gone a number of different ways <laughs>
0: Yeah, it really could have. Um, I think also the timing of when you asked was everything. You didn't do it at the beginning of the session.
1: No, the timing and do do it outside the room. And, you know, I, I brought up how important it is to not punish. And I think there's a lot of things that go into punishing, right? There's there's you can look at someone approaching you at the nam show and you you know by the look of their eyes and by their posture, like how green are they? Are they going to punish me? They're giving you all of that info before they even say hi. I think there's there's a sort of a coolness. I call it uh, happy from the nose down, cool from the nose up. You got to do the kind of the cool, you know, I, I'm a, the cool lazy eyes. I like I'm not asleep I'm not too eager though I'm just here I'm I'm here to serve I want to bring value to you you're that's what you're telling them with your eyes but your your mouth is smiling you are you are eager you're excited but you know not in an annoying way you're not a kiss ass <laughs> nobody wants that and uh, th- th- these are things that I've just like because I am so excited. I'm ADHD. I have so much energy. Like I'm I'm passionate about audio. I feel like I'm achieving things now, but I'm still just as hungry for it as I was 20 years ago. If I didn't make another dime doing music, I would still be mixing 10 hours a day every single day because I love it. So I have to coach myself on this, man. I have to like, before meetings, I look in the mirror. I'm like, okay, what are we going to look like? Like, we got to be cool. Calm down. Don't be too eager. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's, it's a lot that goes into it.
0: There's a lot that goes into it, but you still have to go for it. That's the thing. Did you get any imposter syndrome when you went up to him or any like, uh I nah, am probably going to say no, like any of those doubts or was it total confidence or was it just like a fuck it? Let's just see.
1: Well, there was no choice. There was no choice but to take that opportunity. Yep. So I I call that story an L.A. story. And for people that live here, generally there are these quintessential moments. And you call it a, huh, that's an L.A. story for you. Like, oh, I bumped into so-and-so and and then that happened and then this happened and it opened up this door. Like, boom, that was my L.A. story. And I knew that that there might not ever be another opportunity like that again. It could have been the last. And since then, there have been, you know, 10 or 15 other stories just like that that required a whole different type of careful execution in order to make it go right. You know, and some of them that I just completely lost. (laughs) Like, I've done spec mixes for artists that I just, I want to cry about it still years later that I just, I didn't get it. And then it goes on to be just a massive, massive, massive success. And, you know, you, you get W's, you get L's. That's how it goes. But we we just got to wake up in the morning and do our best. Man,
0: it's such a fine line though. There's some people who are hitting me up for opportunities all the time. And there's something in their vibe that uh, makes me feel repulsed. Like I would never give this person an opportunity. Just something in the way that they are talking or the way that they present themselves makes me not even want to hear what they have to say. And then there's other people who in their approach I'm already ready to hear I'm ready and it it it's such a fine line and it makes such a huge difference because uh how you come off in that moment is oftentimes the difference between that yes or that no or that uh I not even going to like listen to you basically and those types of moments can be life changing i the thing is though and here's What I think is important to realize is that even if you take those shots, a lot of them are going to fall flat on their face. And so it's important to assess why it happened. Is it that they just didn't like this mix or is it that you suck as a mixer? Is it that this position was already filled or is it that you make everyone feel weird when you're around them? And it's important to know the difference between, between those things. Like if you're going for a position that's already filled and they're happy with who's got that spot then it's nothing personal right like but if you're a person that repulses other people and that's why you didn't get it should probably work on that same way that if uh you know people heard your mix your test mix and just didn't feel it was the right fit that's completely different than if you suck at mixing totally yeah gotta assess that stuff
1: Yeah. And I I think that it's important for us as a community to just hold each other accountable. So like, you know, in my relationship with my wife or with my manager or with uh, my assistant or with interns, like I I try to have this really, really transparent uh, feedback system. It's like, hey, if I'm if I'm messing something up, please tell me about it. Uh, you know, and, and vice versa, I'll, I'll always start it kind of the way that MJ would. He'd be like, Hey, with love, I'm about to give you a little bit of criticism, but it's because I care about you and because I want you to do well with love. Um, you know, I think we could, I think we could improve in this area and we could just, can we communicate a little bit better? You know, whatever the, whatever the scenario is, that feedback system is so important. My dad always said, iron sharpens iron. And he's so tough on me, man. Like <laughs> I send him my I send him my mixes and he's just like, hey, I think you're on something here. This is this is getting better, but we gotta we gotta talk about your top end. We gotta we gotta <laughs> we gotta place those hi-hats somewhere else because I, I can't even hear the siblings of that vocal. I'm like, oh god, dad. You're crushing me, but I love you. Thank you for that. <laughs> you know, we elevate from that, that type of uh, feedback. It's important. You got to be able to take feedback too. Do you, do you find that that's a good quality in your employees that work for you, that, that they can take a uh, positive reinfor- uh, criticism?
0: Well, if they weren't able to, they wouldn't stay employees for very long. <laughs> you drive a tough ship over there? We just have high expectations. You got to. If I fuck up, I'm going to be the first to say that I fucked up and I like that the people I work with will hold me accountable too. So it's very, very important that we all hold each other accountable and that people accept responsibility when they dropped the ball or fucked something up. Not because they're getting shamed, but because everyone needs to take ownership of what they're causing or what they're doing. Um, or not doing and uh, yeah I find that on my team it's very good like that which is part of why I think we're doing well we don't get hung up on bullshit I can just tell somebody something's not good enough and or that something wasn't right and they're cool we all are. That's
1: great. Yeah, I, I can tell that you guys have a great morale over there. Like, uh, I can see that all like all like between uh, the content creators that you have, and the uh, other uh, people that are doing like posts, and it's it's just it's a well oiled machine. And everybody that works with you has a sense of ownership over this great thing that you're all collectively creating and contributing to. And that's. <sighs> I'm thinking specifically about a couple of other pro audio companies <laughs> that are that are led by different types of individuals uh, and it, it can be very uh different than that <laughs> We
0: want this to be a great part of everyone's lives not just not just the uh not just the end user but uh the people who work here. We want this to be a great thing we want them to love working for us with us, and we want them to have a personal stake in what comes of this and we want them to take pride in their work and we need that to be organic. Yes. Yeah. So the way you do that, I mean, my opinion, the way you do that is, uh, by holding people accountable, but also, um, finding what they're great at and encouraging that and helping, uh, helping develop what it is that they're great at.
1: Yeah, foster their strengths. Yeah,
0: and then also uh, compensate them well. Those things all make a, a huge, huge difference. Don't ever let them feel like they can't say what's on their mind. We shoot down people's ideas all the time, and that's tricky because you don't want to clip people's wings and have them stop coming up with ideas. So how you go about it makes all the difference because you know not all ideas are good, not all of mine are good either. and the way that you go about not accepting somebody's idea is just as important as how you go about accepting somebody's idea in my opinion if you care like if you care about keeping that relationship good, how you do it matters a lot and I don't mean that like anything needs to be sugar coated but uh you know if someone has a come has a proposal on something and I just don't see I just don't see it for instance. I will take the time to respect their idea and them enough to like really give them a detailed reason as to why not so that I help them understand why not. So they don't just think that we just shot it down uh, because we didn't understand what was on their mind or like we weren't listening, like want them to know that, yeah, we took this into consideration and there's a bunch of really good reasons for why not. And I think that that makes a big difference um so yeah makes a big difference how you how you take the critique and how you give the critique is often as important as what's in the critique i think
1: oh my gosh yeah and we can kind of redirect this little analogy to to the listeners by kind of connecting it to taking mixed notes or taking direction from a client like man i have i have really gone through some gone through some hoops with certain projects where it'll be like, you know, 20 or 30 revision, like rounds of revisions. And uh, sometimes they're not always polite. Sometimes it's really like direct, like, why aren't we getting this by now? Like, I I hate what happened with the vocal. Why did it get, like, distorted with this slapback delay? And then, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, on version 15, you asked for that, and you said there wasn't enough distortion and slapback delay. (laughs) So, like, uh, for example, you know, one approach would be, man, well you told me to do that remember here's a screenshot of the text and you just kind of like you have your ego and you don't want to look stupid so you're trying to like show that they are stupid and that they have clearly forgot like nope no, 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 no. We're in the service industry. This, is like, we are the plumber. We are fixing up their song. We are giving them a, a service. We're bringing value to them, and and part of that is comforting. Like, I, I just, I try to just love up on everyone and, and just say, hey, man, you got it. Coming right up. Yeah, there's, there's a right way and a wrong way, right?
0: Yeah, like uh, the receipts, like you just said, like uh, sending them screenshots, that's for when you're in a fight, <laughs> you know? Like, uh, that's like, that's not the kind of, um, that's not where you want to take your interactions with someone that's giving you mixed notes.
1: No. And and I think what'll make or break a career faster than anything is a bad reputation. Yeah. Cause, uh, people will have the end product, but all they will really remember from the process is the last thing you guys did or the last things that were said to each, you know, the last few interactions. So this last stage of the game of mixing is like, that's your final impression until they go off and like you know, tour to support this release for, you know, in a year or so. And then, you know, then they have to decide if they're going to come back. Like, man, should I go to the dude that was kind of a jerk or kind of acted like a five-year-old? <laughs> or should we go to the, like, you know, the, the cool guy or gal that was like just, you know, really patient and understanding and just really showed us that they wanted to dig in and it didn't matter how many revisions because they were destined to make us happy. Like, yeah, we're going to choose that individual, of course.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that regardless of the success of a project people remember what the experience was like and many uh, a multi-platinum producer out there who do not get repeat clients because working with them is a nightmare but that said this episode was not a nightmare (laughs) i think it's a good place to end it i think that we could do this many times and probably go on for many many hours it was a pleasure having you on
1: yeah thanks for having me man great chatting with you
0: anytime All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at A.L. Levy URM Audio, at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at at al.urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y, and use the subject line, answer me, Al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.